Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Brian Nichols for our angel investing episode. Over the last decade, Brian has helped build Lyft, Zooks, OnDeck, and Blackbird past a combined market cap of over $5 billion and helped raise $500 million. In 2019, he decided to try something new. He decided to shift his focus from building businesses to investing in them. He teamed up with Anna Mura Co. to start Uplift the Lyft Alumni Syndicate, and it started with over 300 of Lyft's earliest employees who have since invested over $30 million together. He soon found himself becoming the go-to alumni syndicate guy, in quotes, as he says, and helped Airbnb, Stripe, Pinterest, DoorDash, and many others get their alumni syndicates off the ground. After opening up the Lyft Alumni Syndicate to the public, any accredited investor can join, regardless of their affiliation with Lyft, he started to notice a trend. There were folks from all over the world, all professional backgrounds, who were investing alongside them. These folks didn't have access to a network, the knowledge, and the guidance that he was lucky to have. So in October of 2020, less than a year into the pandemic, he quit his job and joined Hustle Fund, his favorite early stage VC, Fair, one of my favorites too, to build Angel Squad. The results were pretty phenomenal. In two and a half years, I guess you're almost at the three-year mark. More than 1,400 people have joined Angel Squad, and as a group, they've invested over $21 million into 50 startups. They have reporters, scientists, founders, and students from all over the world in their community. I can't wait to chat with Brian and share his story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Brian Nichols. Hey, Brian. All right. Thank you. That was such a nice intro. I appreciate you going into so much detail. Of course. We got to give people the full context. And I also think these intros are so good for someone like you to sit and hear like, oh, yeah, I have done a lot of stuff. Good for me. You know, do a little <laughs> pat on the back because I feel like with life, we're just moving so fast. We don't always stop and think about how far we've come. Oh, I love that perspective. Yeah. I think about it, too, though, that I've been at this for 12 years. So I hope I put some points on the board and made an impact. I certainly work really hard and and feel driven to try to produce. And, and so, you know, I guess it does feel pretty good to just hear that, like, you know what, on paper, it does sound like we've made some progress here. Yeah. And also that the everyday things do stack up, right? Like so often you mm-hmm. might be struggling with some company and it takes a few weeks and you're like, oh my God, but we did it. And someday something happens in a day. But if you look back over the course of a year, or a couple of years, it's like, wow, a lot was done. So yeah. congratulations. Oh, thank you. We're just getting started, though. We got a lot, lot to do. Yeah, yeah. I know. I can't wait to hear all about it. So, before we get into the meat of your story, I do like to start every show with an icebreaker, and you can take this question any way you want. It can be a personal, professional, light, serious, whatever you want. What is something new that you've learned in this past week? Oh, that's a great question. Let me think. Um, Usually, whatever comes to mind first, no matter how random it is 
is usually the thing that's the most interesting. All right, then then this is the one. I don't know if you're on Twitter, but I tweeted out a tweet thread, just kind of a rant about something earlier okay. this week. It was just kind of spur of the moment, didn't really think it would have that much juice to it. And I uh, it ended up going viral. There's over 500,000 impressions on it. I only have like 6,000 followers on, on Twitter, so that never happens to me. And so I think the learning was like, you never know what it is that's in your mind that's going to just end up striking a chord with a lot of people. And so I think that was my takeaway. I was like, whoa, I guess a lot of people are on the same page with the message that I was sending there. Well, now you've left me hanging. I have to know what this this tweet was about. Yeah. Can you give us like the gist? I mean, I'm sure people are now going to like look back and try to find yeah. it. But what was it? So basically, I think we all go through this day-to-day cycle of like, what are the high impact things that I can do today to drive my business forward, right? Yeah. You know, it, it really depends on the, the company, but oftentimes what I've started to notice with a lot of founders is they kind of trick themselves into thinking that they're doing real work when really it's just motion and they're not actually doing the hard work. And I, I we all do it. This is, this is not like just pre-seed and seed stage founders, which is kind of who I was referencing in my tweets, but it's all of us. And so I just basically said, like, I hate the fact that we all trick ourselves into thinking that we're doing real work when most of it is fake work. And so I kind of listed out one example that I think triggered some people of what I think fake work is. And so if like you're a pre-seed or seed stage founder and you're working on your brand identity, that is fake work. Like spend a day on that max. But the real work, you got to build the product. You got to see what customers say. You got to launch it. You got to push it out into the wild. Go get a customer. Get somebody to pay for this thing. Do the hard work of actually, I don't know, making money. Like that is the ultimate. Building a business? Build the business. Yeah. Stop Stop with the brand identity. Do that when you've raised your Series A and you actually know you have something that people want and do the real work. And so you could tell that like, this strikes yeah, struck a chord. Clearly, I care about this a lot. And it just like some people jumped in and were like, hey, brand identity is important. And I was like, yeah, it is. When you've figured out a little bit more about what it is that you've built that people want. But until then, go do some of the harder work. Well, you know, it is a hot take because I think a lot of people would disagree with you. Like if you look at the Red Antlers of the world, which is they're like some big branding agency, they did mm. Hinge, they did Allbirds, they did Birchbox, like all the D2C iconic brands we all know of, they all started with these like insane brand identities. And then you argue like, was that part of their success? Actually, maybe not. Did they need that? I don't know. It reminds me of like something I always say, which is I think unfortunately now we've really glorified what it means to be an entrepreneur, mm. even like what it means to be a VC. And so I see some people love like the act of saying they're an entrepreneur, the act of being it. Like there's one person in particular, I obviously would never name names, but they, I think it's more like that's part of the personality, (laughs) not like I love business building. Because like when you meet someone who's a true entrepreneur, they've been selling something since they were 12 and they're kind of psychotic about you know, their members and the product and things like that usually. Mm -hmm. And so you can usually scope that stuff out right away. But I agree. I think it's like part of a larger issue that we've glorified you know, having a cute business, but not really glorified the work of generating a bunch of money and returning it to your investors, you know? And and I think the bigger problem too in the VC world 
is we've glorified fundraising and headcount. Oh my God. Right? It's not what it's about. Like, go sell your product and see if what you're offering right now is what people want. And if you're not doing that, then you're not learning more about, like, you're going to start to learn more about what the customer wants. It's going to take you on this interesting journey. And if you're not doing that, like, you're, you're burning through your VC cash. And it's just like, what is the purpose? Do you realize that if you raise $10 million and you've done it that one time, but then your company failed, that is not a good thing, right? And so I think people are like, yeah, I've, I'm a, I've raised $60 million of funding in my career. And it's like, okay, so how did that go for you? Yeah, have you returned $6 Because you need to 100x. Right, how did the returns look for that? I think people yeah. in general, if you, if you surveyed 100 people in the tech world and you said, are you impressed by this person who's raised $60 million? Most people would say yes, because they're like, wow, that must be an impressive founder. And to me, I'm like, I actually think I'm way more impressed with the bootstrapped entrepreneur who never raised any money and they built a business doing $5 million a year in revenue and they're 100% owner of that business. That person rocks. Like that is much more my vibe, which is kind of ironic since I work in VC. Same. (laughs) But I love those founders. Yeah. Well, I think I get really excited about founders who've done that before. Mm -hmm. Like I always joke, like your first business should never be raising venture dollars. Mm -hmm. Never, 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 never. Like, and again, not, not that I did it the right way at all, but like I bootstrapped three businesses before I ever even was in venture. Like I, you should love business building. It should be in your bones so much so that you're like, oh, I didn't even know venture was a thing when I was building stuff. I was just building because I need to build. Yeah. That's, and that was me. And I think that's probably why we're both kind of on the same vibe here. I know we're kind of aggressive about it. We're like, people need to not, I know. But I think, I think it's also like really important for people to hear, like so much of raising capital is about returning it. And like, especially at pre-seed and seed, if you're not a hundred Xing that capital, that's not necessarily a win. And so, and that is the expectation. And so I think it's good for people to hear that from someone like you too, who's seen so many companies and gotten so many early stage companies funding, like it's not a win. And there's a lot of expectation that comes with raising that capital. Totally. And I, I honestly think, so when I bootstrapped my business straight out of college, I did it for three years. Yeah. One of my best friends, mom, she is like a legend in the VC space. And I asked her, I was like, so what do you think I should do? And she was like, avoid VC money at all costs. You're going to lose control over everything you're doing. And it seems like you really like doing your thing. Like don't raise VC money. This is coming from a VC. And that was kind of like my foray, first foray into entrepreneurship and so from that point on, like I just tried to build my business out of cash flow. Like I, I got clients who paid me money, and with the money, I was able to grow the business. That was it. And so when I look around, I found it, the my biggest pet peeve is founders who are like, you know, super pedigreed. They don't even really know what they're they want to build. They they don't have like a burning passion for it. And they're like, you know, I think I'm just gonna go out. I've got this like kind of this idea. And I'm going to try to raise like maybe two to $4 million seed round around this idea. And I'm like, no, like that is not how this works. You need to have, <laughs> anyway, I mean, we could rant about this all day long, but that, that is, uh, we could. that is not one of our favorite, yeah. my favorite things about the VC landscape. 
But we need people like you in the VC landscape promoting this kind of stuff, right? Like thoughtful business building and like understanding your unit economics. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need, I mean, people like you could either run away from venture entirely and just go bootstrap stuff and call it a day. Or you could like help change the ecosystem a bit and be like, actually, no, let's build things differently and let's educate people, which is a lot of what you do now. I know with Angel Squad, which we'll get into, you educate people on what to look for and like, hey, yeah, no, fundraising isn't the thing we should be praising. It's a great mm-hmm. business and a founder that's passionate. And so I think while this stuff can maybe get under both of our skin a little, it's important that we don't mm-hmm. run away from it because this industry needs people, I think, you know, really like you who can who can promote that. So I want to hear more about this business though. So you went to USC, I did my research and you started a reward tag is what I yeah. have here. So like, tell me what was the idea? How did it go? You bootstrapped mm-hmm. it highs, lows. And then there was also, I found in my digging, there was like another company that you said didn't go so well. So walk me through like those two. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just like you, I have always had the entrepreneurship bug and coming out of college, I didn't even consider like looking for a job where I would get hired to work for somebody else. I was like, I've got some ideas. Like, let's see if I could build them. Now's the time. And so I did a master's program that was kind of focused on online entrepreneurship. This is in 2010, so different era. Twitter was pretty new. And uh, so that's like where, where we are in, in this ecosystem. And so I had one, and group buying sites were kind of a big thing. Groupon was like the talk of the town. Yeah. And so one idea I had was what if you could like buy a activity like uh, kayaking for two people in the bay? And it showed up on your dating profile. And this is, a, this is called Date Simply. And so people would basically be matched based off of their dating interests and then actually go get offline and go meet up in person and do something. And so back then, this was like a very novel concept. Tinder did not exist. Like this is- Wow, online dating. Look at this you. Was, this, was okay. pre, this was pre-Tinder by like maybe- six months. So the timing was actually really good. And the two guys who I co-founded it with were in my master's program. This is actually like our final project. And we built it. We had uh, he, one of my the guys worked at the conglomerate that owns JDate. It's called Spark Networks. They own all the like the vertical dating sites. So JDate, Christian Mingle, like all of those, which at the time that was, it was like huge. And the other one was like match.com. Those were the two online dating platforms. I feel like that's still how it is. Like Match.com acquires all the ones nowadays. Right? That's true. Tinder is owned by by one of them. And yeah. the, so one of them made an acquisition offer to us. And the program director of my program came with us and we did a meeting with the CEO of Spark Networks. And how old are you at this point? What's your age? When you're getting your master's? 22. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And I was like, this is sweet. And they're they were basically going to pump everyone on the entire platform into our our date simply product and we were going to get i think it was 20 percent of all profit from that business every quarter that was the acquisition offer and we not bad and my my peers said no they said no and i was like why would we say no and uh, my professor to this day we still talk about it she's like that was the stupidest thing i've ever seen like i can't believe you were the 22 year old the other guys were i think they were 30 and she was like, why did you say yes? Like, why did not, why didn't they say yes to that? And they were trying to be, they were trying to be like, this was going to be their billion dollar thing. And, and I don't think they felt like that's what would happen, but it is what it is. We said no. 
Wow. You learn the importance of actually taking acquisition offers once in a while. I think we only hear about the one that said no and then Mm -hmm. made it. Like we only hear about the one that, you know, we had that acquisition offer and we were like, no, we can still do it. We can still make it on our own. And then they made it. We don't hear about the ones that get the offer, say no, and then maybe it fizzled fizzled within weeks because basically those guys were like, let's go shop it around. Let's go talk to the match.com and like see if they want it instead. And I was like, I mean, we don't know anyone over there. The guy who said no worked at, at this that Spark Networks. He he was an employee there. It was like per, he was going to be like the leader of this thing anyway. So I was yeah. like, what a what a brutal learning experience. And then, but I was like, guys, <laughs> I'm not going to work with you on this. I'm going to work on my thing, which is reward tag. And the idea for reward tag came when I did the running of the bulls with my brother in Pamplona, Spain. And he had been going all over Europe. He had amazing photos from his trip. I was living in Madrid at the time. And we did the running of the bulls and he, he lost the camera that had all the photos of us doing it in his all of his tr- oh, European no. trip pictures. And I was like, you know, if somebody found that camera, they would definitely want to give it back to us. But there's no way for you to, when you find a digital camera to know how to get it back to somebody, right? It's just not possible. So somebody out there has has that camera. And I was like, what if you put a, a tag on it, like just a just a sticker with a serial number on it that said reward reward for return, rewardtag.com, takes you to a digital profile for that person who owns that device, makes it super easy for you to return it to them, and they can give you a reward for just being a nice person and returning it to them. So just like, hey, it's not like, hey, this is the value of the camera. I'm giving you $1,000 for returning. It's like, hey, you went to the post office and mailed me my camera. Here's like $100. Go get yourself you know, a nice bottle of wine or something. And like, thank you for, for doing that. So that was my big idea. And I, I started that with one of my good friends from college. And so I can tell you more about the, the journey there if that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us how it ended up working out because I feel like that one had more of a happy ending from what I from what I saw. Or kind of? Kind of. I mean, you know, it was it was a 3-year grind, bootstrapped. The biggest hit was we our biggest client was Logitech and they make these in-ear monitors for musicians and those things are super valuable. Like when Justin Bieber goes on stage, he's got that thing, it fits perfectly into his ear. If he loses it, it costs like thousands of dollars to remake the in-ear monitor. So they wanted to be able to track it better. And, you know, at the time, like putting a air tag in there was not an option. So it was put a sticker on it. And so they were, they were our biggest customer. And then over time we got a Australian laptop bag company. So it's STM bags. They're, they're actually distributed worldwide. It's a, a pretty big company and, and they they found a lot of value in the registration data that we were able to capture for them from those tags. And so they were the ones who ended up acquiring it back in 2014. And so sold it to them. I think it's still up. I think they still use it. Like, you know, it lives on. It's almost 10 years later. Yeah. I got to check rewardtag.com. I think it does. I think it still exists, but should we check? Let's look right now while we're chatting about it. I hope it's reward. I think the one bummer is I think we used like Flash at the time when we built this like so long ago. So there's a... Oh my it's gosh. Still there. Look oh, at yeah. this. It's still there. From CVS, reward tag is the most effective method for acid recovery. Wow. Look at you. 
That's so cool. I think that's that's really like the win is like if the thing lives yeah, on. True. In whatever way it looks mm-hmm. like. Like, you know, I worked at a company for a long time and like we ended up consolidating some things and putting it into like a book on Amazon. And like that wasn't the original mm-hmm. thing, but like it lives yeah. on. And like there's something really beautiful about the thing you built still being in existence versus like shutting down, you know? Totally. And I mean, there are probably people out there with like a phone case or a laptop bag that has our tag on it. And if they lose it, like the person who finds it can still go to rewardtag.com if hit the return item button and punch in the, the ID number and give it back to them. I wonder when was when the last lost item was returned. I don't know. That would be interesting. You can email the Australian bag company and, and <laughs> hey, ask them if they have that data. <laughs> <laughs> A quick search yeah. for us. So you you sell this company and you I know obviously had an amazing, you know, few stints at different companies, but then you started this like journey at some point a few years later with investing. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I really wanted to dive yeah. into for this episode because you're doing that now is like your angel investing journey. Mm-hmm. So you're at Hustle Fund now, which we'll get into, but like when did your angel investing journey start? Before I know before Hustle Fund, but what what did that look like? Yeah. While I was a startup operator, I started to kind of realize that it's not fair, actually, is like the, the easiest way to put it, that investors who are not doing any of the, the hard work at the startup, they have preferred shares and I have common shares as a startup operator. And I, I needed to get on the other side of the table because I like when things are fair <laughs> for me and, and benefit. So I was like, okay, I love building startups, but I want to be on the other side. So how do I get started? Maybe like maybe I should just become a VC. And so I got that advice, like, I think you would love VC. You're a hustler, go out and find a VC job. So I met with like literally a hundred VCs and try to get a job. Did you meet with your best friend's mom again? Yeah, I've talked to every every single person and then all of their friends. Love and it. so I built out this amazing network of VCs, all of whom did not want to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> not a single person was like, yeah, yeah, come work for us. So, but what they did say was, you know, it seems like you would, you would be good at this, but you need to prove it. And so go out and start investing. And I was like, all right, how do I do that? And they're like, well, you need to find your friends who are starting companies and you need to find their friends who are starting companies and, you know, all your ex lift colleagues who are starting companies, go invest in those companies if you think they're good and uh, let's see how that goes. And and then one person was like, and for you to be able to invest and have more kind of economic benefit, you should do a, a syndicate where you're finding the deals and then you're syndicating out those deals to other people who can invest alongside you. And so I got the courage to um, a couple of years, this was two years after I had left Lyft, this is in 2019, I reached back out to like hundreds of Lyft employees, my old friends, people who had left Lyft too, or people who were still there. And I was like, hey, I'm going to start this syndicate. I'm going to source deals. If you want to invest in anything, you can invest as little as $1,000. It's free for you to join. Why would you not just do this? And and it worked. And so I got like a couple hundred people joined. I started doing some some like digging to find founders. And then as you mentioned in my intro, I had the like... L- unbelievable luck of getting connected to Ann Mira Co, who is the co-founder at Floodgate Capital. Floodgate yeah. was the first she's an icon. Investor. She's, she's an, an icon. icon. She's like on the Midas list every year. Yeah. She was the first investor in Lyft. 
She was on the board of Lyft for ever since the beginning, one of the best investors. And she was like, this is cool. Like, you want me to help you with this? And I was like, yes, of course. So for years, literally, I mean, we still meet every month. We used to meet every week um, for, for literally years, especially during COVID, we were meeting constantly, just going through my deal flow. And she was telling me, she was teaching me how to do it. She was teaching me how to invest and also filtering. Not a bad person to learn from, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, I was like, this is incredible. You know, if it passes the Anmira Co. sniff test, then I'm bringing it to the Lyft syndicate. And then in, I think, five different instances, she invested too with Floodgate. And so there are a few deal, like a number of deals that we've done together that I sourced. And one of those is like a total rocket ship. And so I feel like I've given her something back for all of the amazing lessons she's taught me and, and time she spent with me. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that was kind of how I got started. That's incredible. And I'm so, how, and how did you guys first initially meet? Like, how did you, and get this on the calendar? Like, what did that look like? I know she was obviously involved from Lyft early on, but how did you, with this like crazy idea, convince her? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think she was like interested in a new source of deal flow and and she could kind of tell that I was somebody who's not going to waste her time in terms of like saying I was going to do this and then not follow through. And so we met, we met up actually at Lyft HQ. We hosted probably a 15 person, like, I guess, seminar where Anne kind of taught this small group of people in like a two hour session, like how to invest. It was like a very quick little thing. Yeah. And at that thing, I was like, okay, and like, this is awesome. This is a good starting point. Let's go. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to do a ton of work on this. This will be an, in addition, I was still working full time and, and like this, this is going to be worth your, your time. You just need to teach me like, what does a good deal look like? And then I'll start to bring those to you. Unreal. Unreal. Good for you. It also means you're good at pitching yourself and selling yourself because a lot of people that are as iconic as Anne get pitched all the time for, oh, I have this idea. Oh, can you mentor me? Oh, can you this? And I think that's like the perfect example of it working yeah. in a way that was really value-add for her and obviously very value-add for you. Mm -hmm. So then what then led you to joining Hustle Fund? And there's, I know in, in your bio, we talked about how you like quit your job and you were like, I'm going all in on angel investing and helping other people. Yeah. What was that like? And how did you get that gig? You just pointed out the insight that I had about a minute ago, which you're you're like, oh man, getting you know taught by Anne Mirako, a legend, like no big deal, right? And I was yep. like, yeah, that is unfair. Like I got that access, but what about everyone else? Who can teach them all of this amazing stuff? I actually took it to Anne first, and I was like, do you want to do? I have this idea. She's like, I got so much other stuff going on. And at the same time, I was also talking to Hustle Fund and I was, I got to know Eric and Elizabeth and I was like, there's this huge opportunity out there, you guys, of all of these people who want to get access to early stage investing. They have no idea how to do it. They're all in my syndicate. They're listening to me and the deals that I'm sharing, but they don't know that I don't know what I'm doing. This is only, thankfully, only because of Anne that there's a good filter here. And what if a venture fund for the first time ever cared about bringing new people into this ecosystem. The the thousand dollar angel investor who probably is the most helpful person investing in that company for reasons we could talk about later. What if a venture fund brought those people in? 
And basically when I met with Eric and Elizabeth from Hustle Fund, they basically sent me a Google doc that said the same thing. They were like, here's this angel. It was, I think it was called angel club. And it was Elizabeth Yin's like 10 bullet points of what like an angel club would look like attached to hustle fund. And I was like, Whoa, we are on the same wavelength here. Let's, let's dig in. And so, you know, we, we talked through all the details of how it would work. And eventually we both got enough conviction that this was something that we, we should go for. And we have been shocked at just how much interest there is from so many different types of people like who want to do this. So yeah, it's gone incredibly well. We've been doing it for two and a half years and yeah, we're super excited about it. I think it's amazing. And you know, with so many things in life, you look back and you're like, oh yeah, that of course, like, you know, there's a lot of angels and yeah, of course there are funds that have angel squads, Mm -hmm. their own version of it. That's only because now they do because they've seen you guys prove out that example. And then they're like, huh, Maybe I should do that too. Another side note too that I'm just going to geek out on because I see the emerging fund side of it is from a management fee standpoint, it's really hard with small funds to make money Mm -hmm. because, and you don't want to have to raise a gigantic fund just for the fees. But if you do these creative initiatives, like having an angel squad, like doing events, like doing a million other things that venture funds do, sometimes it can be very actually lucrative too. So, because that's also an important part, right? Like this has to be beneficial to Hustle Fund. Yeah. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about what an everyday angel investor could look like. If someone's listening now, let's say they're like 26, they're, you know, some operator at a big tech company. Are they qualified? Are they not? What does accreditation mean? What does it, you know, what, what's the minimum check size? Like walk us through kind of some of those basics. Yeah, sure. So an angel investor, so we, we, we say uh, hustle funds kind of MO since the very beginning is great founders can look like anyone and come from anywhere. And then we started to realize that is also true for great angel investors. And so if you are a tech operator, 26 years old, doesn't, so the only reason why it matters how much money you make currently is there's an SEC accreditation limit for basically a financial level that you need to have in order to angel invest. However, there's also a series 65 exam that you can pass as most of the step to becoming accredited. You study for it for a few weeks, you take it at Angel Squad. We actually pay for the exam fee. It's two, it's $187. And so anyone who passes the Series 65 exam sends us the receipt and we pay them back for that. And so, so let's just say, you know, you found a way to become accredited. Then the question is deal flow, right? You, you obviously need to be investing in high quality companies. So where are you going to get that from? I mean, the first place to look is just in your network. You probably have smart friends who you work with who have quit their job and they're, they're starting something. And so, and, and maybe it was like your boss is, is just quit and they're starting something and you think it's cool. You have two options. You can go try to work for them or you could invest a thousand dollars into their company or you could invest 5,000 depends on whatever you want to invest. And there's so many ways for you to actually mechanically do that now that did not exist even five years ago. So for example, you know, you might think, $1,000, a company that's you know trying to raise $500,000, they don't really want that. The truth is they do. And there's w- tools now to make it really easy for them to basically spin up something called a roll-up vehicle or something like that. Roll-up ve- vehicles are on AngelList. 
And essentially you invest into a vehicle that then invests into the company. It's a very clean way to do it. Makes it so there's just one line item on what's called the cap table for that company. So the company should just create that vehicle and, and make it super easy. And the reason why $1,000 is actually valuable to them, number one, if they get you know 50 people to put $1,000 in and, and that's not that hard for them, that's $50,000 that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. That's really helpful. But number two, and more importantly, it's the $1,000 check writers who are bringing the most value to the cap table. I've seen this so many times now that I have a lot of conviction in it where you know, you might have the $100,000 angel investor who's like, you know, worth mil- probably tens of millions of dollars if they're writing 100K checks. They write that check and they're gone. They're like, come back to me in seven to 10 years when that is worth 10 million bucks and I'll care. Otherwise, just stay out of my way, right? That's what you see a lot of. The $1,000 check writer is reading every investor update that the founder says, where they're saying, hey, here's how it's going. Here's what I need some help with. If you can help me with this, or if you know somebody who could help me with this, or if you know somebody looking, who's an engineer looking for a, a new job, like if you can refer those that in and, and be helpful to the founder, you are more valuable to that founder than 95% of the other people on the cap table. And it just so happens that that $1,000 check writer is more connected to the right people, more motivated to actually connect the dots than just about everyone else. And so I highly encourage people who are thinking about it to get out there and and just, you know, don't invest a high percentage of your total net worth. But if you're able to invest maybe, you know, $1,000 into 10 to 20 companies, you know, for the next, let's call it, you know, three years, so you can get over the the hump, you need to, you need to be able to invest into at least 20 companies, I think, in order to have a diversified enough super early stage portfolio. But that's kind of the very long answer to your question. (laughs) No, that's beyond helpful. And I think people, they don't always understand the process of how do you even get involved and what even is an RUV and all those steps that lead up to it. And like you said, I think the most underrated thing that no one talks about is how helpful those checks are. Yeah. And capital is abundant especially if you're a great founder and you've got a great story, you really can raise from a lot of people. They're not, they don't want you involved because of your $1,000 check. Like that's not going to move the needle for them. That's like, you know, a paid ad for 10 minutes. Like it's just not going to do anything, but they want to plant seeds of people that will be in their corner. Mm -hmm. And so if you can also pitch yourself as someone that can help them, that will go a long way. How do you think about, and this is something that I think about a lot, building a personal brand Mm -hmm. and being a good angel investor and pitching yourself as someone who will be valuable and is worth accepting with the $1,000 check. So like, you know, let's say there's this amazing company, they're raising 500K, like you said, and I'm just like, you know, someone on the internet that no one knows who I am. And I happen to have like, you know, a, a random job. How do you tell people, how do you convince people like to get on that cap table and to make a, create a personal brand? How important do you think that is? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of answers to that question. So the first is I, I kind of want to answer with a story. So the first time yeah. I ever met with a founder was in a coffee shop in San Francisco. And it was kind of a company that I probably uh, definitely today would not invest in. But what he was trying to build, I knew some people who would be able to help him. And I got excited. I was like, hey, listen, I'm going to help you. I have a great network and I'm going to connect you to the right people. And he was like, cool who are they? <laughs> and I was like, okay, 
give me 24 hours. I'm going to come back to you with a spreadsheet and it'll have, I think it ended up being like at least a hundred people, their LinkedIn profile, what they do today and why they would be help, like potentially helpful. And so one of those people was the CEO of Pop Chips, who is a family friend. And that was very relevant for this company. And I was like, here's the list. It was a Google sheet. Here's, here's the Google sheet. Who do you want to meet? And I think they picked like three or four people from the list. And then I connected them. And so there's kind of like, let's call it the private personal brand, which is on, in a one-to-one in -one setting. What is it that like, how do you pitch yourself as value additive? And in this case, my pitch was, hey, I am a super connector. I know a lot of people and I'm going to connect the dots for you. Um, so that's that's one way. Another framing could be like, hey, I'm an engineer at Coinbase. You are building a Web3 company. I'm your go-to person in the early days for asking, you know, some soft like engineering specific questions. So you can rely on my skill set and my knowledge. So that's like the one-to-one -one brand piece. And I think that that's really to me probably the most important. Then there's the second piece with it, which I think a lot of people spend more time on which is like your public brand piece, which is, do you have a LinkedIn presence or a Twitter following? Like, are you known for something more publicly? And that's an amazing thing to have. It's an incredible asset to have. But I think most people could probably get away with the first thing, which is just getting really good about pitching yourself and why you could be value additive to them. And I think you can probably just really focus on that, at least in the beginning. I love that you said that because I think not enough people talk about that and they don't think that they're qualified. Mm -hmm. Like exactly to your point, that early software engineer that like has an incredible amount of knowledge about that doesn't think, oh, because I don't have a public facing brand or because not many people know where I exist or where I spend my time, I'm not qualified to put in the $1,000 check. But to your point, we all have a skill set that would be valuable to an early stage company. Yep. Even if you work in PR, like even if you oh, work yeah. in medicine, you know, there's always something... And then I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about Angel Squad and sort of that expert filter that you guys provide for people. So I think another thing that people struggle with mm -hmm. is how do I know what's a good company? Yeah. Like, I don't know. My friend is starting this thing. I like my friend, but like, I don't know if it's a good company. And I think Angel Networks like Hustle Fund can really help say, oh, this is how we think about looking at a deal. This is what we're going to invest in. This is what we're not going to. So like, can you walk through, let's say someone after this call right now is like, okay, so I have a thousand bucks. I'm going to invest in 10 to 20 companies over the next few years. But like, how do I know what's good companies and how do I yeah. judge and have that filter? That is such a good question. And I, I guess like the first thing that really helped me was setting the bar, right? What, what is, what does good look like in general? And and so that, that was, you know, what I got from Ann Mirako was number one, what good look like to me and what good look like to her were there was a big gap. And so I needed to raise my bar big time. And then that opened up the next question of like, okay, what is the framework that she is using that I can then apply as well, right? What are the things that matter to a great investor? And so just to kind of put some, some concrete terms there, like founder, why is this founder the right founder for this company? Did they do something in their this, the past 10 years of their career that gave them this insight that the rest of us don't have? It's not super obvious and they are the right person to be able to, to execute it. So that's one, right? Founder. Then there's like, okay, what's the problem and what's the solution and how 
painful is this problem and how complete is this solution? And so it's just kind of starting to think through what are the inputs that matter there? And then the size of the problem, right? The market, like, is this a huge problem with a ton of potential paying customers that will pay a lot of money for this product and probably do it in a recurring way so that it's predictable? And like, so how do you think about the market size? And how do you think about the competitive landscape, right? And how does that impact, right? So, so you're developing your framework. And so with Angel Squad, what we do is we teach our framework in a few different ways. We have live events where we're teaching it. We have courses where we've put it basically all of it down on paper. Here are all the inputs that we think about. And then we actually have a rubric we encourage people to use, which is like, go score it on a scale of one to four, not five, four makes you decide. You can't be a, like a three out of five. Everything's a three, yeah. If you're, if you're a three, you're leaning pro, right? Like there's no neutral on our, our, our scale of one to four. And so all of those inputs and go ahead and actually score. It's a good forcing function for you to not get kind of sidetracked by your emotions and be really objective and, and score it. So use a framework, apply a disciplined approach to the framework. And then the, the, the most important thing is actually just reviewing lots of deals, getting lots of repetition. And that's really kind of the core focus for us at Angel Squad is like, if you want to learn, you just need to go through a lot of deals together. And it doesn't take that long. I mean, when we go through a deal, we spend maybe 10 minutes per deal where we click through the slide deck. One of our, like Elizabeth Yin from our investment team, will explain whether or not she's going to take the meeting, why or why not, using the framework. Okay, like this is not a big enough problem and we're not going to take this meeting because it's just, it seems like kind of, we call it like a vitamin, right? Not a painkiller. And so where does this fall on our framework spectrum? And so just reviewing deals together is such a valuable way to kind of build the conviction and confidence in your approach. I love that. And everyone starts from somewhere. Like, and I think you always feel like, especially in venture and with angel investing, you don't get the same feedback you do with building companies. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we both probably feel this way. Like, you don't know if you're any good at this until 10 years out. You oh, know, yeah. you, you just make bets and you just don't know. So more than anything, this industry really relies on like chatting with other people, getting their perspective, trying to really educate yourself and knowing that no one knows what they're doing. And most investors that have been around for less than a decade actually don't know if they're any good because <laughs> it takes that long for a company to mature. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, we're all starting off with knowing nothing and it's just finding the right resources and people to educate yourself. And that's exactly why we created Angel Squad at the end of the yeah. day is like, there's so much opportunity to just help people skip a few of the painful steps of just like learning the hard way and seeing your dollars go to zero. We can help you get better at your filter. And frankly, like we, what we also do with Angel Squad is we're sharing all, a lot of the deals where Hustle Fund is investing, meaning this is past our filter and we think it's good. We're putting our money where our mouth is. If you wanna invest with, with us at the same terms into the same companies, you can. It's up to you. If you if you want to invest a thousand dollars into any of these companies, you can. If you want to just watch, that's fine too. But it gives you a better feel for like what a fund like Hustle Fund thinks is good. And I think that is a really helpful starting point. Absolutely.
Well, thank you for sharing all this. I feel like I could keep talking to you about this forever. And I know this is the world that we live in, but you are the angel investing expert. So before we do wrap it up, I do have one final question for you. We ask all our guests this. Is there one piece of advice that you would give to every 20-something? And it doesn't necessarily have to be angel investing related. Mm, okay. So this is this is a polarizing comment. Some people will firmly agree and some will, will not agree. I believe strongly, and this is, this is how I approach my career, that you should be impatient with your career trajectory, maybe is one way to put it, which means that if you're not happy with where you are, if there's something that really is not feeling right about the current status of your job, you should try to make a move. That might be moving internally within the company or it might be moving outside of the company. And I think historically that has gotten a bad rap. They call it a job hopper. You're not there for more than you know two years minimum, like you're moving around too much. Well, so I moved around a lot. After my startup, I was at Lyft for two and a half years, Zooks for a year, Blackbird for a year and a half, on deck for 10 months, and then I started Angel Squad. And you look at most other LinkedIn experience, and it's not that job hoppy, but to me, that was my approach that I felt very strongly about, which is like every day matters a lot. And if I feel like for months in a row that this is not working for me, I need to be really honest about that with myself and make a move to what I think is a better fit. And so, you know, I think you may look back with some regrets if you do that too much. You'll also definitely look back with many regrets if you're stuck in a place for five years and you're like, whoa, I could have done some some other stuff during that point. And it got really comfortable and was getting paid a lot. And so it was, it was all good. And I just I just think that you can learn so much from finding the, the things that are really pulling you strongly in those times. And it, it shouldn't just be impulsive, but like if you find that you can get energy, a lot of energy from going to something different, then you should pull on that thread. And I'm sure there are people listening to this who are be, who, who feel strongly that this is bad advice. So I think you need to really take it to heart that you got to do what feels right for you. And I'm kind of just saying that if you're one of the people like me who kind of, I felt pretty bad about it. Like I got a lot of shit for it from from even my family, like, what are you doing? You're moving around so much. And I was like, I, this is just seems right for me. So I'm giving you permission if you're one of us to do that. And you're certainly not judged by me. If anything, I think I applaud you for kind of going against the grain and, and going with your gut and, and pulling on those threads. I love that. Well, we did have someone on the show It'll be when this airs several episodes ago, who was at one company for 13 years mm -hmm. and I couldn't believe it. And I was just overwhelmed that she was able to stay for that long. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's definitely a balance. Like, I think it's all okay. It's what works for you. But I agree. I think it's very entrepreneurial too, to get impatient and want to go explore the next thing. Yeah. And to stay somewhere for a while, it really has to meet a lot of needs. I think most entrepreneurs feel that way if they're going to be working for someone else. So hmm. I think what you're saying really resonates. Like someone like me, I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. You know, I think that it is hard to, because you want to just keep finding the next best thing and get closer and closer to what feels like the truest, yeah. you know, role for yourself. Part of the reason why I have conviction in giving this advice is where I am now, which ironically is a place where I never want to leave. And I don't think I will, 
I don't think I will leave. Like I love Hustle Fund. It's a it's like a marriage. We are so deeply entrenched now with what we're building with Angel Squad that we joke about it. Like this is my last job. And so part of the reason I feel like I can give this advice is that it's really worked out well for me because I found it. This is what I was looking for the whole time. And I think you what you were just saying really resonated with me in that like it probably is somebody who would make a good founder who wants to kind of make those quicker moves. And so I consider myself a founder of Angel Squad with Hustle Fund. And I think being a founder and and really being able to call the shots with what we're building is and, and doing so on my own terms is all these boxes that I've always wanted to have checked, they're all checked. And so I found it. And I think like that's probably the case for people who are also in that kind of mobile mindset and so, you know, hopefully they're able to find it too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great that they can see that you have, you know, but know that the journey was like windy to get there as it is. That's why we have the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a lot of us get interviewed on the things we do that everyone knows about that are big, but we don't talk about the hopping and the in-between. Yeah. Well, can you tell everyone where they can find you on social? And if they now are like, okay, I'm writing my checks, where do they go to learn more about Angel Squad? Yes, of course. Thank you. Well, I'm on Twitter. It's B underscore Nix11. Didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing when I created that username, so I'm sorry. <laughs> and then uh, on LinkedIn, just I think search my name in Angel Squad. You'll find me. Uh, I'm very active on both. And please check out Angel Squad if this all sounds interesting to you. Now you can go to angelsquad.co and it'll take you to our site, which is a kind of a big deal for us now. Congratulations. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. It used to be hustlefund.vc slash squad, but now it's angelsquad.co. So yeah, check it out. And, and we'd love to, to learn more about why you want to invest. I love it. And then there was, I want to just make sure I flag this. We'll put this in the show notes, but there was a free resource that you said that you guys make available. Could you just share a little bit about yes. that too? Yeah, yeah. So we are... Really excited about something we're launching uh, this week, which is this is going to happen. I think July twenty fourth. So depends on when. This will be a couple months ago, so it'll be live. It'll be out. Yeah. So whatever. So there's a. We're really excited about what we're calling the Hustle Fund Angel Investing Starter Kit, and it's a it's a PDF. It's probably I think it's probably about ten pages. Pretty in, in depth, but it will go into a lot more detail than what we just covered kind of tactically on how to get started with angel investing. And I think for anyone who thought our conversation was interesting, they will really get a lot out of the starter kit. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to share it with everyone. And thank you for being here, Brian. This was so fun. Great to finally chat. This was so fun. Let's do it again. I love it. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.